Great to be together and hearing Grace praying for us like that is always such an encouragement to my soul. I hope it is for you as well. And uh, yeah, I'm also really excited about Christmas too, Grace, because today is officially the first day of the season where I can start to legitimately moan about Christmas and look forward to it being over. So uh, I will be on the front row of that choir. <laughs> Good morning. Uh, if you don't know me, my name's Richard. I'm one of the pastors here. It's great to be together. Um, if you're part of the church, you'll obviously know that we are currently working through the book of 2 Corinthians. Um, this is uh, one of the letters that the Apostle Paul writes to the church in Corinth, which is in modern-day Greece, uh, which is a church that he helped to found and develop. And the purpose of this letter is to help the Corinthians to kind of readjust theologically. One of the dynamics at play here is that a number of uh, opponents of Paul, who were probably very flamboyant and articulate speakers, had come into the church and had kind of caused them to drift off their moorings. And Paul is trying to wrestle them back into shape biblically by rehearsing the gospel to them, by telling them, this is what it is, this is what Jesus has done for you, and this, therefore, is how we should live in light of that, both towards God, but also towards one another as well. And so it's a really helpful and good book to be uh, thinking about and working through as we prepare for the next season of life here at Gateway to make sure that we are in solid shape ourselves as a church family in how we relate to God and to one another as we set our sights on this big date, the 8th of January, when our building project up at Alder Road will be uh, complete. Look at that picture. That's almost complete, if you ask me anyway. It's looking great, isn't it? And uh, things will, of course, be very different as we continue to meet as one church, but in two distinct congregations, one up there at Alder Road, of course, in that lovely new building with its wonderful car park about to happen, and uh, one down here as well. Today's passage is called The Ministry of Reconciliation. We've called this preaching series Prepare. And uh, what I want to encourage us today, you can take the picture down now, thanks Angie, is um, to prepare for reconciliation. We're going to look at what it means for us that the gospel reconciles us and then calls us to be agents of reconciliation to the world. When something is reconciled, it is brought back together, isn't it? it? Which implies that if we are to be a people of reconciliation, then there is something that needs fixing which isn't fixed. It's separated or disordered or alienated, and our job is to address that and to bring and to embody reconciliation. So that's the kind of stuff we're going to be looking at this morning. Um, if you haven't yet Feel free to grab a church Bible or open your devices or whatever, because we're going to work through a passage which, um, because of its density, might be helpful for you just to be able to see how the verses relate to one another and how we skip back and forth uh, through it. So the passage is 2 Corinthians 5, verse 11, and we're going to work through the next 12 verses of that to uh, 6, verse 2. If you're in the church Bibles, it's page 1161. As I said, it's under the heading called the Ministry of Reconciliation. Now, the, the biblical premise of this section of Scripture is that all things being equal, our starting position, the starting posture of the human heart is not naturally conciliatory towards God. 
sin in our lives, not just what we do, but who we are by nature for reasons we'll look at later on, has meant that our relationship with God has been severed, and therefore something needs to be done to fix that, to reconcile us back to God. And further to that, we need something to be done to reconcile him to his people. No reconciliation with God, no reconciliation with what is his, his people, the church. That's how it works. And so we're called into, the gospel calls us into relationship with God to be reconciled to him and to one another and to invite others into that relationship by being reconciled to him. Is everyone okay with that? That's the background, that's the premise of what we're about to read now. So here we go, 2 Corinthians 5 verse 11 the ministry of reconciliation. Paul says to them, since then, we know what it is to fear the Lord. We try to persuade others. What we are is plain to God, and I hope it is also plain to your conscience. We, this is Paul and friends, are not trying to commend ourselves to you again, but are giving you an opportunity to take pride in us so that you can answer those who take pride in what is seen rather than what is in the heart. If we're out of our mind, as some people are saying, it is for God. If we're in our right mind, it's for you. For Christ's love compels us because we are convinced that one died for all and therefore all died. And he died for all that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for them and was raised again. So from now on, we regard no one from a worldly point of view. Though we once regarded Christ in this way, we do so no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come, the old has gone, the new is here. All this is from God, who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. Okay, there's a lot of concepts and thoughts there, but what Paul is essentially saying is, people in the church in Corinth, be careful to evaluate the weight you place on the message of others. You're evaluating people by their outward appearance, their exuberance, and their articulate ways, and so on, and that's got you into trouble. If you're going to do that, then really you shouldn't actually be listening to me because I'm not an impressive looking or sounding person. But if you're going to use a criteria to determine who you should listen to, then really what we need to do is start with the fact that we're all in the same boat. Nobody is ahead of anybody else. Nobody's special. We're all far from God. And that Jesus died on the cross to address this, that's what's important. Not the importance of the speaker, but that something that Jesus has done is what is of primary importance. That's the baseline. And therefore, even someone like me, with all my faults and failings, so long as I am preaching this central message faithfully, even if I look like a madman compared to some of your impressive-looking speakers, so long as what we prize and coalesce around is the fact that Jesus has died for us and been raised to life, and that we can be too, that's what's of central importance. Not the credentials of the speaker, but the reliability of the message. And it's because of this message, the gospel, that we are reconciled to God and that we are therefore reconciled to one another. It was broken, and then Christ came and fixed it. It was broken, Christ came and fixed it. 
And that's what's beautiful about the gospel. And what, another thing that's beautiful about it is that it's every bit as true for us now as it was for them then. Relationship with God was broken. And then Christ came and set us free from spiritual death. And now it's fixed. And that's the gospel, the same gospel that unites us to each other and unites us to all believers across the globe through every generation. One of the reasons Matt shared what he shared this morning about the persecuted church is that we are in this together with them. The gospel unites us to pastors and people in Iraq and in Ukraine and all around the world. The gospel does this. It reconciles us to God and it reconciles us to his people. Now, if that's true, if the, if the gospel is the foundational, central, and most important message for us to receive and to live by, then in a loud world like Corinth or like ours, Paul's argument here invites us to consider what else are you listening to that is louder than the gospel or in some way overshadowing, overshadowing its truth in your heart? Who will you listen to is what this passage invites us to consider. The the voices and the messages in our world are loud and they're compelling. As of last year, there were nearly four and a half billion people on social media. Consider there's only seven and a half billion people on the planet. And predictably, the most followed people on social media right now are also the most beautiful and impressive, just like they were in Corinth. Cristiano Ronaldo, Kylie Jenner, Selena Gomez, Nicki Minaj, Dwayne Johnson, have combined 2 billion Instagram followers. That's a figure equivalent to over a quarter of the population of planet Earth that are following the everyday, daily thoughts of these five people. And there's nothing wrong with them in particular. I actually really like some of them. Um, But in terms of the most pressing issues in my life, my salvation, where I find the deepest satisfaction for my soul, how I love God and other people, with the greatest respect to Kylie... (laughs) Jenna and Nicki Minaj or Selena Gomez, it's probably not going to come from them. These things are only contained in the gospel, exclusively of Jesus Christ. The basis for social media celebrity and their voice is generally that someone looks really impressive or has starred in a really good film or written a good song, but none of them have died for you and brought you into relationship with God. TikTok is the most downloaded app in the world, those of you who use that. One billion users, the most watched video on TikTok, it's been seen two and a half billion times, is a bloke who jumps around on a broomstick pretending to be Harry Potter. (laughs) You need to just take a moment to... (laughs) Sorry, that one got me. It should help us to um, evaluate the voices that are going in and what they commend and the extent to which they drown out our deep need for the most important message of all, which is the gospel. That's the the point I'm trying to make. And, And Paul makes this point. If you only pay attention to who and what seems impressive in your own eyes, well, in that sense, you kind of get what you pay for. Celebrity culture begets celebrity wisdom. It's doubtful that any of these guys from their high vantage point in society are going to tell us that all we need, all we actually need for our salvation and our wholeness is to completely surrender ourselves, completely surrender ourselves away from what the world offers to make way for what God's wonderful purposes for our lives are through Christ. 
And Paul concedes that he himself made the same mistake. It's, it's an age-old problem. He says he used to use those criteria. He says, I was once a, a religious VIP, essentially. I was, you know, I was the leader of the VIPs. I used to look at Christ and his followers as a sort of ragtag bunch of religious subversives. In fact, one day I was on my way to round them up and imprison them until I encountered the risen Jesus face to face, and my world was turned upside down as I recognized as I lay face down in the dirt, that nothing that I had or could achieve could be held up alongside the only thing that ever really matters, which is that I was made for a relationship with God. And that the only way that I could have that relationship was through the gospel, through the death and the resurrection of Jesus. And such is the, the deep and profound change that the gospel has in Paul's life and should have in ours when we receive it. Such is the desire that it creates in Paul to tell the world about it, that in verse 14, he says, it compels me. I don't have a choice. He was a previous opponent of the church, but Christ's love compels us to keep loving you and giving ourselves for you and to proclaim to you again and again that what saves you and what unites us is the gospel. Once you see and savor Christ properly, nothing is going to be the same again. I'm like a prisoner to his love. Who he is and what he's done for me compels me to keep telling people about him and to love his people. Christ's love compels me, he says. That's a deeply revealing challenge for us to. Is your core conviction such that the gospel is so important and so central that to live apart from it would be to miss the whole point of life? And that being the case, that you have no choice but to trust it and to tell others about it. Lord, I pray that you'd help us to receive the gospel, to hold the gospel, to let it take root in our lives. Lord, I pray that we would commend you as we cherish you. That's one of the reasons we're doing what we're doing on the 8th of January and beyond. It's what we've been doing here at Gateway for 100 years. We're preaching a message of reconciliation between man and God and offering that reconciliation to all who would receive it. It's, it's for you, it's for me. Reconciliation with God, greater than any other message you'll ever hear. 2 Corinthians 5.18 again, Paul says, and all this is from God, who reconciled us to himself through Christ and then gave us the ministry of reconciliation, that God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting people's sins against them. And he's committed to us the message of reconciliation. We are therefore Christ's ambassadors, as though God were making his appeal through us. We implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. Now, this next verse is really the very nub of the matter. It's the, it's the essence of the gospel, of what Paul's trying to say here. Verse 21, God made him who had no sin to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. It's one of the most important verses in Scripture. If you get these three verses, verse 18 to 21, you'll really get the gospel. So I'm going to try and unpack this carefully because it's significant and it's central in understanding what Christ has done and what this means for us. Verse 18 again. All this is from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ. Okay. What is God doing? What is God doing in human history He's reconciling us to himself, and he's doing it through Christ. That's 
the summary of what God has been doing since the fall of mankind in the Garden of Eden. God is reconciling us back to him. He's reconciling the world to him, and he's doing it through Jesus. Remember what I said at the start, the word reconciliation implies that things aren't as they should be. When something is, is, isn't reconciled, it's, it's severed. Reconciliation restores something that is severed. And so the question is, what has been severed? The Bible teaches that it's, it's us. It's our relationship with God that was severed. It started with the fall of man in the Garden of Eden, but before anyone gets a chance to say, well, that's got nothing to do with me, the hard truth is that we all, all of us, have, like Adam and Eve, turned our backs on God, looked God in the face and said, no thanks, I've, I've got a better plan. And that has taken us from the friendship with God column and placed us in the hostile towards God column. Our, our history is shot through with it. Straight after man's rebellion in Eden, relationship with God breaks down, and instantly relationship between man and uh, humanity starts to break down. Adam blames Eve, then Cain kills Abel, then evil increases in the earth, and then the flood happens, which is meant to restart humanity. So what do we do with this fresh start? We build Babel, the tower that was meant to reach and rival God. And then we create Sodom and Gomorrah. Then Jacob cheats Esau. Then Joseph's brothers sell him into slavery. And then Israel disobeys God. Then they worship a golden calf. And if you fast forward a few hundred years or a few centuries, we've got transatlantic slavery, two world wars, a holocaust, chemical warfare, missiles that destroy apartment blocks and hospitals. It's exhausting. And it's endemic to who we are. If there's one thing that all these stories and even uh, this morning's headlines should teach us, it's that left to our own devices, we will oppose all that is good and we'll turn on each other. Or to put it another way, we'll oppose God and all that he is, goodness and mercy and love and kindness, and then we'll oppose one another. Now we don't need legal contracts to bind us to do what we say because without them, we won't. Sorry, I said we do need legal contracts to tell us to do what we say because without them we won't. We need human rights laws because without them we'll mistreat others. We need truth inquiries because we can't tell the truth. We need peace treaties and defense budgets to stop us firing rockets into each other's countries. Every single major civilization in history is built by the enslavement of one man by another. We are at every turn unable to reconcile to one another and with every disposition of the human heart hostile to God. It's not really that we have sinned to distance ourselves from God. It's that we are sinful by nature. This is why the Bible uses such strong language at times. It refers to us not as just slightly wayward children, but as enemies of God. Relationship with God, goodness and mercy is and always has been on free offer, but we've only ever turned our back on him in favor of pleasing and satisfying ourselves which is why it's so easy to ignore the greater reality that our reconciliation with God is also meant to glue us in relationship to one another. Apart from reconciliation with God, we're in no way predisposed to be reconciled to our fellow man. Injustice and violence are quite simply the fruit and function of broken relationship with God. It's the root cause of the problem of the human condition. And so the fact that Christ, that through Christ, God is reconciling the world to himself is both scandalous in light of this rebellion and wonderful in light of what it offers us 
And insofar as our ability to do anything about this, or in, in terms of how much pressure is on us to make this happen, the pressure is completely off. Because in verse 19, it says that God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting people's sins against them. And he's given us the message of reconciliation. We are therefore Christ's ambassadors as though God were making his appeal through us. And so we implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. It's obvious. What is God doing? He is reconciling us to him through the work of Christ in light of all of our rebellion and hostility towards God and towards one another, in light of us warring against God, Jesus is God's peace treaty to you and to the world, reconciling us back into relationship without any cost, without any penalty to us, free of charge. He's done it all. It's a completely open door. Be reconciled to God. And as you do, you are included in this work of reconciliation. You become his ambassador. Literally, that word is used in the same way that a, a representative of Caesar's, with, with Caesar's full imperial mandate was used. You become an ambassador of God into hostile territory, into the world, so that you can be both reconciled to others and make this reconciliation appeal to others. How has God done this? How has he repaired and reconciled the relationship that we walked away from? This next verse is one of the kind of golden nuggets of the New Testament. For me, it's like the, the central facet of the gospel diamond. If you, if you get this, you, you kind of get the whole deal. This is how, verse 21. God made him, Jesus, who had no sin to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Let's just dwell on that verse for a moment. It's glorious. At one point, we were in the enemies of God camp with no way back. We were dead in our sinfulness, every part of us tainted by this severed relationship with God, hellbound. And then the eternal Father steps in to rescue us and snatch us back from death and disconnection and bring us back into relationship with him. And this is how he does it. He made Jesus, who had no sin, to be sin for us. And then after he had done that, we became righteous. What? An impossible exchange happens. Jesus takes on our sin and gives us his righteousness. He is sentenced to death, and we are declared pure and free. It's, and it's on the strength of that righteousness that has been placed over us that we're reconciled to God and can be reconciled to one another. That's the whole gospel. So it's worth just thinking about the dynamics of that for a minute. Jesus was, was perfect. He was the only perfect person in history. He perfectly loved the Father, and he perfectly followed his will, and he loved and blessed and served everyone he met. If you want to know what God is, look like, what God is like in his loving perfection, look at the stories of Jesus in the Gospels. In him, there was no sin, nor was he in any way sinful. He didn't build a big tower to try and rival God. He didn't enslave anybody. He didn't fire rockets into anyone's territory. He lifted up the oppressed. He fought for justice. He came near to the lowest and the weakest. Okay? That's on one side of the equation. On the other side of the equation is us. Violence, 
inequality, injustice, and rebellion. We look God straight in the face, and we go the other way. That's this side of the equation. On one side of the equation is the father of eternal love. On the other side of the equation are the children of rebellion. On one side of the equation is the author and creator of life. On the other side is the stench and stain and grip of death. And so to cross from one side of the equation, out of death and into life, we don't need to meet God halfway. We need to be fully removed from this side where death has its grip on us in order to be fully reconciled with the God of life and love, the eternal Father in whom we live and move and have our very being who's on this side. And we can't do this ourselves. Nor can Cristiano Ronaldo or Kylie Jenner help us. And so here we have Jesus, who is perfectly righteous and perfectly in relationship with God. And here we have the rest of us who are tainted by sin, and disconnected from God. And given that God is perfectly good, and he wholeheartedly loves us, and is therefore grieved by our separation from him, as any father would be with their child, he is angry against sin, because it's sin that has caused this relational and spiritual breakdown for his sons and daughters. And so he's going to do something about this. He's going to do something to rescue sinful mankind from death. And he's going to punish and overcome the sin that has caused this. And so his solution to this is to swap the sides of the equation. And the way in which he does this is just perfect because he just takes takes it all off us and places it all on himself. Jesus, it says in verse 21, becomes sin for us. He takes on. Scripture says that he metaphorically drinks down the cup of God's anger against sin, and then in perfect obedience to God, he goes to the cross. And the nails that hold him up there are also holding up the record of our sins and removing them away from us, such that as Jesus dies for, our sins, dies for us, our sins die with him. Jesus becomes sin by being treated and regarded as if he were us, an enemy of God, so that we can become like him, righteous, He suffers the fate of sinners, which is death. Isaiah 53.5 says, He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. And in that moment, it says that the dividing wall of hostility between man and God was torn down and that the way was made open for all mankind once again to be reconciled to God. The Father has made a way for his children. Paul uses... This word, reconciliation, cleverly. The word, Greek word is kataloso, which has the connotation of an exchange. It means to exchange hostility for friendship. That's what reconciliation is in this context. It's exchange of bad for good, hostility for relationship. And the basis of that exchange is that Christ, who is eternally residing in heaven with the Father, has come down to the not good side of the equation, has come to live with us, has borne our sins, has picked us up and moved us back to the other side where he should be in perfect relationship with God. And we now, clothed in all that Christ is, are seen as righteous in the sight of God. Cataloso has happened. An exchange has happened. His righteousness for our sin, our hostility for his friendship. It shouldn't be like that, but it is. How does the song go? Because the 
sinless Savior died, my sinful soul is counted free. For God, who is just, is satisfied to look on him and pardon me. Isaiah 53, 5 again. This is prophesied 700 years before Christ. It says, his punishment, the coming Messiah's punishment, is our peace. What a glorious statement. His punishment is our peace. And by his wounds, we are healed. Healed from death. Healed from the stain of sin. Healed from severed relationship with God. Healed from enmity with one another. We are free now from needing to be like that. And so Paul just spells this out to the Corinthians. Don't listen to the braggarts, to the celebrities. They're just like you and me. We're all in this together on the wrong side of the equation. We're all enemies of God. Until God made him who had no sin to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. This is the most defining aspect of our past and our present and our future, that we who were at one time enemies of God have been through the death of Jesus, who drank down the wrath of God, who was nailed to a cross and took us out from under the devastation of our rebellion and sin, are through that same sacrifice now made righteous. And we have been reconciled to relationship with him, such that now we are known as friends of God, sons and daughters of the Father. There is nothing that you'll find in the headlines or on social media or in any kind of worldly literature that surpasses the glory of knowing that we, through the work of Christ, are seen as righteous by God. It's just incredible. We are now sons and daughters in the same family. And the thing about sons and daughters in the same family is that we're in the same family. So our reconciliation with God naturally leads to reconciliation with one another. In fact, reconciliation with one another is testimony to what Jesus has done on the cross. Because without it, it's just not possible. And so Paul makes this really obvious appeal. Be reconciled to God. There you go. This is how you do it. Be reconciled to God. Walk through that door. Jesus has done what is necessary for you to do it. Receive it as a free gift. To, Jesus has done what is necessary to move you from the wrong side of the equation to the right side. It's, it's all just waiting for you to say yes. And he's also given us the ministry of reconciliation. So be reconciled to one another. Strive for peace. Think well of one another. Lay down your life for one another in all sorts of ways. Exchange enmity for friendship. Be creative about how you do this because in so doing, you will embody the reconciling ministry of Christ who has reconciled us to God and be his ambassador. Tell others this good news that now that all are welcomed into relationship with God because God who made him who knew no sin to be sin so that you and I and people everywhere and at all times might now become the righteousness of God and be reconciled to him. This is the good news of the gospel. And then he finishes in this next verse, chapter 6, verse 1. Paul just kind of does a mic drop. In light of all that I've said, I tell you, now is the time of God's favor. Now is the day of salvation. Gateway now 
is the time of God's favor. Don't wait on this. He favors you now. And don't think that you have to do or become or learn something before you can accept this divine reconciliation. Now is the day of your salvation. In the New Testament, people heard this message and they dived straight into the river to be baptized. They didn't go home to calculate the cost. Friends, brothers and sisters, you do not have to spend one more day in isolation from God. You do not have to spend one more day striving to work out what will satisfy or ease your conscience or justify your existence or calm the inner voices that tell you that you're unworthy or valueless or that your life is purposeless or that you're beyond hope because today is the day of your salvation. And so, like Paul today, I want to make an appeal to you. Be reconciled to God. And for those of us who are reconciled to God, live like it. Be reconciled to one another. The old has gone, it's past, the new has come. And as we head to January the 8th, and every day of our lives, let's wear and carry this ministry of reconciliation into foreign and even hostile territories into the world and declare that the old has gone, that the new has come. And as we position and organize ourselves for ministry in this new context, let's, let's carry God's decree and his invitation to those around us that relationship with God is possible. Reconciliation with God, this great exchange of hostility for friendship is possible. Christ has made it so for you. Consider what it is that would stop you from fully receiving it. What are you ambitious for above being ambitious to be a friend of God? Address that thing in your heart. We all do it. That's human nature. What would it look like for you to come into the family of God as a full son and daughter? Jesus has made this possible. Let's live in light of it. Why don't we pray, and then we're going to take communion together. Can I invite you to stand with me? Jesus, I do... So thank you for your work on the cross, which achieved for us so many things, but fundamentally tore down the dividing wall of hostility between us and the Father by taking away our sins and clothing us in righteousness, that we might now live free of death and fully in life and relationship with you. Lord, I pray that you would help us to fully receive this gospel message, to let it settle in our hearts and to live it out, and to bring great glory to you as we do. Amen.